It's time you turn your ideas into a reality with Squarespace, because Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind or doing anything on the Internet. Did you know you can do everything on the Internet? You can, and Squarespace can help. Use their beautiful templates, use their 24-7 award-winning customer support, and do all that by heading to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also pretty sure I will never see The Godfather Part 3. I've heard nothing great about it. I'm a busy person in my way. And most importantly, the first two Godfather movies are a unique thing to me that I do not want to alter the experience of in any way, because uh, I watch those like I do not watch any other movies. And here's what I mean by that. In case you haven't seen them, the first Godfather movie is a single story about Michael Corleone and his dad Vito and their family and everything. The Godfather Part 2 does this thing where it tells two stories at once branching off of that first movie. It continues forward with Michael's story, and then it also drops back to the past to see Vito as a young man. It's an expansion in both directions. So what happens when I watch the first Godfather is I need to watch part two as quickly as I possibly can. In my brain, I am not seeing one movie and then another movie. I'm seeing one six hour story. And if I only do the first three hours, I feel crazy. You know, I, ha I haven't even finished it. You might be saying that's crazy, but hey, we all have different things. And sequels are are just a different order of thing to me than The Godfather Part 2. It's just a different kind of thing, a different level of thing. And that gets us into this week's topic. We are talking about common mistakes that ruin movie sequels and trilogies. One more time, that is common mistakes that ruin movie sequels and trilogies. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's mainly story and concept stuff, also thematic stuff, and, and just all kinds of different common mistakes that people make in the process of making whole new movies. And I'm so happy to be joined on this one by Cracked editor, columnist, and more, Syriac Lamar. Uh, you've heard him on the show before, in particular about pop culture, and in particular about comic books, which are the most heavily serialized pop culture there is. We'll get into that a bit, too, in terms of what they've done there. And his movie knowledge runs deep and runs fascinating. I had a great time talking to him about this, so let's let you hear it. Please sit back or sit inside the original Godfather house, which is on Staten Island and went on the market a few years ago. Isn't that fun? It is real estate. And either way, here is this fun episode of the Cracks Podcast with Syriac Lamar. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. So we're talking sequels and trilogies today, uh, but also in general, I'm sure a lot of people have heard you on the show before, but maybe to set up priors for people like what are our favorite franchises and movies to see? Like if you're going to go watch a movie for fun, what do you what do you dial up? Very few things can go wrong with a very classic Schwarzenegger 80s action movie. As yes. in there's you can just see what the decade was all about. You can see a lot of the socioeconomic themes, a lot of the just in terms of like the aesthetic themes like Schwarzenegger, it was very much like the bodybuilding scene. So, of course, this <laughs> killer robot in a Terminator movie is going to be a naked, muscular man. Like, so I, I feel like it's hard to go bad with a Schwarzenegger flick if I'm just, you know, all things equal. I really like with that Schwarzenegger thing. I feel like almost all of those are not serialized, right? Like each movie sort of just drops him in, even though there's a lot of tropes we're looking for from Schwarzenegger. They're mm. almost all standalone. They're almost oh, all, oh, now he's a commando. Now he's a policeman on Mars, etc. Oh, 100%. It's There's a weird everyman characteristic about Arnold Schwarzenegger, despite the fact that he is like, uh, you know, a world-class bodybuilder. <laughs> and he's also, he's also the all-American boy, despite the fact that he doesn't even hide his you know, extremely Austrian accent. So <laughs> there's there's very much that. It's it's such an interesting juxtaposition, you know, with uh, Schwarzenegger. And we've got uh, we've got so many tropes of these sequels and trilogies, which and sequels and trilogies are not all bad in a general way, but these are things that movies can avoid. And one of the basic ones here, this is from an article: Five Stupid Mistakes Basically All Movie Trilogies Make by Spencer Thu and Tiago Seven. 
And the first mistake here is the idea of changing the story in a way that ruins the previous movies. So you have a sequel or, or the final part of a trilogy, and then you just drop stuff in that invalidates the previous films. Mm-hmm. I feel like this happens kind of a lot, especially for being such a, a basic key error. It's crazy. There's so much of trying to flip the script to play with the audience's expectations. And the funny thing about movies is just as like a money making vehicle, it's not like a TV show where serialized and the you know economic cost is way less to change a plot point with a movie yeah. and a film franchise. You're, you're going all in. You're going all in. There is a lot of money at stake <laughs> to make this movie both innovative yet appealing to the people who like the previous film. So, <laughs> you end up with a lot of completely narratively bankrupt films. <laughs> well, and as far as uh, these movie franchises where they they commit to something, like you say, it is such a massive bet every movie in a franchise. Like they're they're banking the entire thing on this next one installment. Do you have any favorites of these examples in terms of a franchise that just really, really went for it in movie three? Well, it's uh, it's kind of very apropos that I started talking about Schwarzenegger because the Terminator movies, I think, are a master class in how not to write sequels for a movie. And um, <laughs> I, I love that we're starting with this one because there are so many factors, I feel like, going into especially Terminator 3 here being a being an issue for the whole thing. Like anything time travel is very difficult to keep doing just the more you think about it. Terminator 3, if I remember right, it was a while after the second Terminator. Oh, yeah. So like I, f- I feel like there's another issue a lot of times in sequels or trilogies where if you wait too long to do the next one, there's kind of too much turnover behind the scenes. There's too much distance from the previous one. And so like the next people just might not have that commitment to making the previous stuff work or make sense. They might just be like, oh, no, it's a new era. It's 2003 when Terminator 3 came out. Like it's a whole new ballpark. We're going to do whatever we want. That Terminator was the sexy lady Terminator who um, saw the lingerie ad and became like very curvy to use her sexual wiles to get out of a scenario. Um, (laughs) Like if you ever watch the commentary of Terminator 3, it's it's such a total train wreck. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger narrating the movie in real time, but also trying to riff on how good he looks naked and the sexiness of the Terminator. It's it's really oh, no. some it's it's really some inspired listening. Um but yeah, just as far as I guess the plot of Terminator 3 goes, it really invalidates what happens in the opening movies. It's the inevitability of Judgment Day is I guess that makes sense from a physics standpoint, but it really drains the joy out of the films, you know? Because doesn't it, it opens with Sarah and John Connor finding out that there was no way to stop the apocalypse no matter what. So yeah. then, then why did we do two prior movies? It doesn't it doesn't feel good or necessary. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's like a bad way to make that movie. You could like make it some weird existential drama of like John Connor, like <laughs> having an apartment outside the Terminator factory. And he's like... <laughs> Man, I just wasn't able to stop this. Like, but then again, you know, <laughs> Terminator Three. It's a product of its times. It's a product of its times, and you know, it's. It was also actually interestingly enough in a down period. I think in Schwarzenegger's career, he had made a lot of kind of crappy movies at the time. There was, uh, you know, the one where he's cloned, and the one where he like fights the devil. And I don't even remember the names of them. I just know it's oh. like Schwarzenegger versus the devil and end all of the days? Schwarzenegger. Is that it? Yeah, end of days. End yeah, of days. Yeah. yeah. So you could see that going back to that well made sense from like an economic standpoint. And that was also prior to him running for governor. So if T3 came out in 2003, I believe he was elected in 2003, too. So like he probably wrapped the movie, went and campaigned and just got into a whole new thing. So that maybe that's another issue that can Smart. derail these two is just like the, the main people being distracted with the next things that have come up. Like he, yeah, he was yeah. clearly trying to run the biggest state or one of the biggest states. That franchise is is such a key example of this thing where like you say, there could be some kind of really thinky existential Terminator movie yeah, because of the bleakness of this setup where there's just no hope and no way to stop the robots. Yeah, yeah. it's I could picture a really screwed up Terminator movie where it's like, 
you know, John Connor in, you know, he's in his 40s or whatever now, however the heck old, you know, Eddie Furlong is right now. And he uh, is like reading the news. Well, he's not reading the newspaper. He's reading his iPad or his phone or whatever. Because, you, know, <laughs> you know, he's not reading a newspaper. Anyway, but like he's seeing in real time these tech companies invent the Terminator. And, and he's just feel like helpless to stop it because like Facebook is inventing the Terminator and he he has no idea how to actually combat that so he is you know it's it's a day in the life of a man who knows that someday he will be the leader of the you know robot revolution uh, or revolution <laughs> against the robots for that matter <laughs> I feel like they almost a little bit do that in Terminator 2 where they go into Cyberdyne and are, are fighting in the offices and stuff but just tech companies in real life in 1991 yeah. weren't there yet you know like yeah, they couldn't I, yeah. quite execute it Cyberdyne looked like a sharper image. Like it really wasn't this. It really wasn't this like big, you know, kind of like the tech companies that like the big utopian moment, like place like place like Facebook or Google or whatever. It's like Cyberdyne right. half half of what they were inventing was like colored cylinders to like put in nightclubs. I don't know. You know? Right, place. like they build a Terminator and it just borrows the chairs in the mall at Brookstone or something. Exactly. Like it's not, it's not interested in anything cool. Yeah, yeah. 90s technology, man. And then also, I'm glad you tied this into Cameron too because we've got the Alien franchise here as well where the first two movies, especially number two, are about Ripley trying to save key people the whole time. And then third alien, spoiler alert, they just kill off Hicks and Newton Bishop, like right away. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that the shenanigans behind the scene with Aliens 3 had uh, were more intense than Terminator 3. I think Terminator 3 was just like on the shelf for a while. But Aliens 3, definitely there was infighting about the script, you know, what the studio wanted, what writers wanted, what directors wanted. It had multiple drafts. I think William Gibson was attached to it at one point. So a, a lot happened with Alien 3. And the end result is actually really existentially bleak, not unlike kind of Terminator 3 in the same way. It's, you know, she goes and fights an alien, then she falls asleep for 50 years, and then is like, I don't care that I've been asleep for like 50 years or whatever. I need to still kill this alien because this thing is awful. <laughs> and then she, makes some, then she makes some friends and a bunch of them die. And then she makes some like, then she kind of has a family unit going on. And then she's just in jail. Then she's just in like hell prison planet um, <laughs> with an alien in her. And it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a really jarring shift from what people expected, you know, after kind of the uh, standard set by aliens. But uh, yeah, Alien Three I think is an interesting movie, even if it's not the best movie at times. And that's an interesting move, especially to go that narratively dark in it. Like I think yeah. I, I feel like I learned what trilogies are from Star Wars, and yes, and we had yes. we had VHSs where before the movie started. George Lucas was interviewed by Leonard Moulton about how great George Lucas is. That would be like baked <laughs> into the VHS. So you can't really skip it very well. Uh, it would be a lot of talk about how like movie two, you go dark and then movie three, you come back up. Right. Like that's mm. the that's the flow of a trilogy. That's how you execute one people want to see. And then Alien three, which I am looking at the poster here, realizing the three was an exponent the way they stylized it, which is very fun. Yeah, yeah. So it's Alien Cubed. But they went extremely dark in movie three after a relatively hopeful two. That's really strange. Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. And, and also to make things even stranger, coming of age at that time, a lot of the merchandising, I think they had realized that the Aliens franchise was a merchandising uh, juggernaut and you could get people interested in aliens and flamethrowers and things. So the movie <laughs> that all the video games and so forth were tied to is just this incredibly depressing movie about, <laughs> about a woman dying in jail with an alien, you know. In her and in keeping with uh, uh, sort of like Terminator 2 to 3 where there was there was a bigger gap there, but here Aliens, the second movie came out in 1986 and then Alien 3 didn't come out until 92. So it's it's a six or seven year gap. That's, oh, yeah. that's some time. Oh, yeah. and, and expectations build in that time. You know, people want to see spectacle in the way that they expected from Aliens. Like, you know, yeah. it's actually really smart marketing on their part. It's Alien and then Aliens. You just make it plural. Um, and Alien <laughs> Cubed is... A little more nuanced. There's an alien and there's a jail and there's, you know, corporate politics. And it's it's a thing. It's a thing. I don't know if it's a thing people really wanted, but it was a thing. Yeah. And and, and like you say, that's probably 
the least avoidable element of uh, mistakes to avoid when making a sequel or trilogy. But those production problems behind the scenes, like that seems to happen a lot at the the movie three or four stage where just like people want to do other stuff or they get tired of it or, or there's an argument about something. Oh, yeah, 100%. I don't know how easy that would ever be to avoid with a lot of movies because like people will basically get opportunities from the first hit or two and, and then suddenly it's a fracas. You can bring that to our next point, which is uh, discussing the original X-Men trilogy. Ah, uh, Cyclops, yes. the fellow who plays Cyclops. Oh, Marsden? James Marsden? Yeah, yeah, James yeah. Marsden. I'm pretty sure the reason that he has such an abbreviated appearance in X3 is because he was in uh, the Brian Singer Superman movie. Because if you notice, Brian oh. Singer, yeah, yeah, he's like Lois Lane's love interest in that movie, who is the non-Superman love interest. Yeah, yeah. Like, like Jim or something. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's so, that it's that rom-com thing where there's nothing really wrong with the other boyfriend, but we're supposed to be yeah. mad at them. <laughs> he's just not Superman. I mean, that's, right. his, that's his primary failing. Um, but yeah, no, you can definitely see an abbreviate. Uh, I mean, you get that really great scene of Cyclops just getting of of the incredibly iconic and marketable leader of the X-Men getting totally killed in the same movie's opening minutes. Um, you know, <laughs> it's like, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that is a, a mistake we see with both the Aliens franchise and those those first three X-Men movies where the first two, especially the second one's so great. But then movie three, there's a lot of casual death, right? Yes, like, yes. I, I feel like, uh, you know, there there can be a good version of casual death where, you know, we're excited that that George R. R. Martin kills Ned Stark so fast because, oh, now yeah, it's yeah. gritty, you know, but, yeah, the, but stakes, the stakes are established. Yeah. Yeah, but then in these movies, it seems like such a common mistake to have movie three just wipe out several main characters right away <laughs> as like a, like a table setting for something we're supposed to be just as excited about. I guess with X3, one of the things that they drive home and one of the reasons I think that the X-Men have been such a enduring, interesting uh, group of characters is because the X-Men are always about like they always represent that like other outsiderness, whether you're, you know, queer or punk or yeah. getting bullied or, you know, that's why I think it's such an enduring group of characters and why you can honestly write so many interesting X-Men stories. But in that movie, they come up with such a pat solution for all that, which is we have these guns that shoot syringes and they're going <laughs> to fix your DNA. And it's... It's, you know, so so much of those previous movies is about how the, you know, immutability and be who you are and, uh, you know, the immutability of being a mutant and, you know, be who you are and um, yeah. you know, live live your truth and all that good stuff. And then it's like, nope, we got these syringe guns and we are going to fix all of your problems. <laughs> I mean, there's a metaphor to unpack there. I don't know if it's about maybe a metaphor on drug abuse that you could if you if you really wanted to, like you know, go the distance, you could probably tease out. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to make that. That's such a, a killer point about X-Men The Last Stand, the third movie, because it introduces this thing that, like you say, it's it's a syringe of some sort of medicine there or something that, like, vaccinates you against being the mutant you already were. And, and I think any way you try to turn that into a metaphor for something, it's like weird and offensive, kind of, because the X-Men are so about being yourself and the way you're born and whoever you are. Also, just a really dumb plot point, because if they're like making magic syringe guns that can, you know, cure people being like being born like dragon people or having like <laughs> nine arms or something, yeah. why aren't they doing that for like, you know, change your hair color? Uh your cancer. No, they're only doing it for, like, you, you think that one of these things is harder than the other. Yeah, right. Like, who cares about curing Alzheimer's? Dragonism. That's the one yeah, we're yeah, going to we take get, care of. We can get rid of this sick dude who was born a dragon, and rather than celebrate <laughs> the fact that he's, like, I don't know, like, I don't even know what X-Men I'm referring to um, in that case. Uh, I don't know, I should actually probably use, uh, I was going to say I should use real world examples, but the X-Men are fictional characters, so that doesn't totally work. So... The other like real world thing that that the third X-Men movie kind of throws out is that in the previous two movies and in pretty much every comic book, Magneto is very interesting. He has a very yeah. interesting perspective on on mutant rights and on the whole world. And it ties into like the Holocaust, but in, in a pretty yeah. effective way, like they find a way to do it, even though that sounds extremely hard to do. But then in the third X-Men movie, he's just kind of a full on supervillain who kills people all the time. Yeah, he just um, it's you know, it's it's bad storytelling in that like Magneto is supposed to be he's like 
very much the classical, uh, you know, sympathetic comic book villain who yeah. you get you get what you understand why he's doing, uh, why he's doing what he's doing, because you could picture yourself in his shoes if you had magnet powers or were a dragon person or whatnot, you know. And yeah, they just kind of turn him into like just a jerk. Just yeah. a jerk. And that's what no one wants from <laughs> that's what no one wants from a Magneto movie. They don't want a movie where Magneto is just being a guy who can like throw cars at people. No, they want like nuanced sympathetic villainry. Especially because like the thoughtfulness doesn't prevent the car throwing either. Like it doesn't get no, in the way. No, no, they go hand they go hand in hand. You yeah. Know? And then with production things with it, you point out that first two of these X-Men movies were directed by Brian Singer. Ooh, boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, yeah. he did effective X-Men movies. And then the third movie, they bring in Brett Ratner, also who yeah. boy, who, <laughs> Ooh, boy. <laughs> who apparently had never read any of the comics or thought about it much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, and it shows. It is also very strange how of that era of superhero filmmaking with movies like Spider-Man 3 and X-Men 3, it's almost like they didn't trust the final product. They... I think they were expecting audiences to turn on uh, superheroes at any given moment. So you can kind of see them rapidly tying up. the. It's like it's basically like watching a movie and fast forward. It's like we're just tying up the loose ends. Here's here's narrative closure on these characters who have existed for decades, you know, because it's the last movie you'll ever see them in. So Right. Like they thought this was a fad that they had lucked into and they needed to finish making the money fast. Yeah, yeah, and wow. and, just, and and I, I I think it was just accepted knowledge that they had tapped into the reservoir of usable characters, and that's why everyone was very surprised when the Iron Man movie was successful because most people thought Iron Man was a robot. The last time we did a podcast, I think it was about comics, and we we talked about how only a few specific comic fans and the rapper Ghostface Killer liked <laughs> Iron Man until the movie. Yeah, yeah, like that was it. <laughs> yeah, to- Tony Stark when Ghostface Killer, you know, called himself Tony Stark, that was a deep cut. They, he's, that right. was like that that was one for the real for the real fans. <laughs> and now like Tony Stark is more popular than Bruce Wayne. It's it's a really surreal reality we live in. I wonder how often with these uh, pop culture franchises especially the people making them will sort of blink or get the yips or something because they do think it's about to end. Like there's the there with the Bond franchise, there's the famous story around George Lazenby does one movie replacing Sean Connery. And then apparently his representation advised him to not re-sign up and get out because Bond was just going to be a fad and he shouldn't keep going. And yeah. that's supposedly the only reason he didn't keep going. And I I <laughs> I love that with maybe a lot of these franchises that happened. Like the people yeah. doing them were like, we got lucky once, but people will not want more Star Trek. We should stop. We should get out. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if we're going to pour, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into this, uh, let's let's get out while the getting's good. <laughs> let's take the money and run. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and let's look at another key mistake that often happens as, as people do that, as, as they uh, seek the money. This is a mistake of building a whole third movie specifically around seeking the character who disappeared in the second movie. It's yes, weirdly yes. very, very common. You would think that's an extremely specific premise, mm-hmm. but it happens a lot. I feel like the Matrix movies hit on this. And Alex, I did not get a chance to rewatch those m- movies recently. And oh, they were they were so regrettable. They were so bad. It's tricky because the second movie of the Matrix trilogy has just enough exciting stuff that it didn't totally kill my expectations for the third movie. Like, it wasn't good, but I was like, at least there was that cool freeway fight with the twin guys. Yeah. And there were like there were like some other interesting thing. I remember getting disappointed twice over in the process of the second and third movies. Like the second one wasn't good, but also I still had some hope. And then the third one was was a real uh, Looney Tunes kind of thing. Yeah, and I and I think I think with the Matrix movies, again, it's about like flipping the script on what the audience knows, and and so much of what I think made the Matrix appealing to people wasn't. So, I mean, the kung fu stuff is fine, like that stuff is fun, and the jumping yeah. around and downloading things in your brain. But at the end of the day, like the Matrix is you know philosophy one hundred and one. It's the like we all live in a computer, you know. It's that is why <laughs> that is why people like the Matrix. It's um, I mean, some people probably like the sunglasses at night aesthetic or the you know fidelity to late 1990s rave music but there is um (laughs) i think at the end of the day the reason people like the matrix is because of the big um you know mind teaser that it brings and the second and third movie i think were so much about creating lore for a world that most people thought of as like a fun psychological you know 
brain teaser, but uh, and then they're just like, oh no, there's there's all these other computer people, and they, <laughs> they, they there's a prophecy, and and you know you can't kill Keanu Reeves, and what's going on in the Matrix movies? I never thought about it that way. That that the the hook of the first movie was one big philosophical idea, and then in the yeah. sequels they did not find additional philosophical ideas. They just did world building shit <laughs> yeah, that nobody yeah, cares yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I, I think it's easy to rag on the Matrix for being dated or for being, um, you know, kind of passe in a lot of the you know aesthetics of it and stuff. But like, I do think that the Matrix had a lot of. I mean, it was really successful at the time. Um, it presented a really interesting psychological conundrum to a pretty big audience and that's there's there's you know power in that yeah they did okay and it it holds together some Uh, but then in the third movie they're coming off of a second movie where i'm sure no one remembers this clearly but it was a thing where neo's digital soul had been severed uh, and so there was like a bifurcation of him in some way. Again, it, it, not, it doesn't really make any sense or matter. But the third movie, a lot of the film is Trinity searching for uh, a way to like reconnect him soul wise and put it back together. And so there's not actually a ton of, of Neo in the third film because he's they're looking for a way to like rebuild him kind of. And uh, uh, yeah. that's a, that's a weird way to lay out an entire third film of a, a trilogy that that had uh, started to fall apart real fast before that yeah goodness so much so much happens in that movie that is forgotten by yours truly uh yeah <laughs> yeah I, I'm, I'm just trying to struggle what, what happened i think like he's flying a spaceship and he has a force field or she has the force field and then everyone's having sex at one point um yeah a rave right like there's an a, un- underworld cave city orgy thing going on there's like a part yeah. where he's in a bunch of sunbeams and a, a lotus position it's yeah. it's all i only remember like images for the most part but yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah it's, it was very um you know i haven't watched it so i can't vouch for the special effects but i remember being a visually striking movie at the time and you know there was yeah some that's cool attention and care being put into this film that was just really boring just really how do you make a movie about giant robot spiders and learning kung fu through you know floppy disks make that boring and and it did that that brings up a really interesting thing where i feel like the the sequels and trilogies we're talking about today some of them feel like it it's a product of it being underbaked and people not trying hard enough like the third x-men movie i think they just didn't try hard enough but then <laughs> then these matrix sequels they tried so hard yeah like yeah, this they, can they happen re- to people uh, on any level of effort they wanted to make it like Euromancer meets like Lord of the Rings or something. It yeah. was they're, 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 they were throwing a lot into that booyah base, man. They were throwing a lot of ingredients. <laughs> they, were, they were throwing the kitchen sink. Um, In terms of plotting a, a franchise this way, uh, we've got other examples here. My I think my favorite of them is it's the movie called Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock where the whole movie is toward the end of the second movie. There was like a very dense uh, situation to understand where Spock is like gone, but not and his soul is separated, but not. And then it takes the entire movie to rebuild Spock and find yes. him again. And yes, yes. that movie's like fine. And I love Star Trek, but it's it's that that franchise is clearly a thing where everybody likes the movie before and after it a lot more than that one. Yes, everyone likes Khan and the whales. Everyone yeah, likes, you know, whales and Khan. That's, I mean, that's what I like. I, you, you've got me dead right, it's Alex. You know, I like Khan and the whales. A couple other movies where they do this: searching for a character, Pirates of the Caribbean two, seemed to kill Jack Sparrow at the end, but. They do a search for him in three, and he's in the posters for three, so you just know he's going to be in it. And also, they I think they do a better version of it in the original Star Wars trilogy because technically they are searching for Han at the start of the third movie. But then they go ahead and find him and, and get him out, and it's like a fun set piece, and then they make something out of it. They don't spend yeah. the entire film wondering where Han is. They they get onto it. I think what people need to stop doing is creating a liminal space between like life, basically creating purgatory and putting it in your movies to bring your stars back, because it's oh, like the yeah. stakes are so reduced. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like, and it's like, yeah, oh, you can only they'll always be like, oh, you can only cross the like river of the undead or something once, and I don't know. Once you cross it once, you know it can be crossed, man. It's, it's, it's don't. No liminal spaces, man. Like that's you know, and and actually, Justice League, Justice League does that too. Justice League's like, oh, oh the liminal yeah. space between life and death. It's it's here, and you know, we can get Superman, and you know, it's 
Yeah, I know that's like what happened in in the um, Death of Superman, kind of very similar, you know, setup in the original comics. Just don't do it. Liminal spaces, don't do them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that Justice League one is a a killer example, too, because if I remember right, the previous DC Comics movie, Superman is being buried. And then the very last shot of the film is some stuff hovering, uh, indicating that he's probably going to be alive again. But then we spend the entire next movie getting around to that. It's it's pointless. Like, why would you do that? Yeah, uh, and he's and on and he the posters up. and the the Seven yeah. Eleven cups and everything. Like yeah. we all know, <laughs> the Seven Eleven cups they never lie to you. <laughs> they tell no lies. Yeah, they're correct that WrestleMania is coming up, and they're yeah. correct that the superhero is coming back every time. Yes, Seven Eleven cups as a medium of information dissemination. <laughs> Alex and I both have admitted that we get our news from Seven Eleven cups. <laughs> I just imagined like a, a World War II one where it just has war printed on it in big letters, you know, and that's how I learn. Oh, uh, well, this is going to make the Slurpee a lot worse, but okay. <laughs> Many thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Cracks podcast and their potential support of you. Yeah, this this sponsor is here to help you because you could use a website. Maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for a new project or thing you're doing and, and have coming up. Maybe you just want to put your photography out there. Boom, a hobby I'm guessing you maybe have. But maybe you have other hobbies that you could also celebrate with their own website. The answer is yes, you can because the possibilities are endless. I also want to talk to you about Squarespace's support for mobile. Uh, Basically, the whole internet is being used on tablets and phones and and other mobile devices now. We have metrics at the website crack.com that tell us how people are seeing the site more and more every week. uh, It turns over to being mobile devices. If you still use a computer, hell yeah, you're awesome. But also the other people are awesome too. And they're moving into a sort of new futuristic way that things are done. The thing about a Squarespace website is it is optimized for mobile right out of the box. It will work in that setting right away. That's something you need to have in this time, and you'll have it with Squarespace. You will also have 24-7 award-winning customer support. You'll have an easy time buying a domain, so you have exactly the name for your website that you want. Because Squarespace empowers millions of people to turn great ideas into something real. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked, offer code cracked. Support for this episode of the Cracked Podcast comes from Turo. T-U-R-O. They are a peer-to-peer car-sharing marketplace. It's a website, it's an app, and they want to get you on the road. Turo is available in over 5,500 cities across the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Germany, over 9 million users worldwide, over 850 unique makes and models available. Whatever kind of car you would like to be driving, you can borrow it from another person, and uh, they get paid. You get to use a car on the exact schedule and and, uh, location and everything that you want. I think everybody wins, and that's what we're out to do. With more than 350,000 vehicles listed globally, you can get a car if you're traveling or you just need one for a few days where you usually are or any other situation you want. You might know about me. I was on the road recently doing tour episodes of this podcast. And if I was able to rent a car in Chicago, here's what I'd be doing with it. I would have been going around the city of Chicago listening to the song Dennehy by Serengeti. It's a rap song based on like old Chicago area guys and what they're into. It's sort of hard to describe, so we'll link it. But I found myself in that city on transit or in like, you know, taxi kind of situations. And, you know, you don't really have like space to yourself or your own zone to play your own tunes. That would have been me using Turo if I'd known about it in Chicago. Now I know about it. Now you know about it. We're all going to have the best possible time driving around. Turo also has insurance options for every trip. You can skip the rental counter with them, and usually they offer something at a lower cost than traditional car rental agencies. Why don't we get that cost even lower? Download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play, or visit Turo.com, and you get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo and use promo code CRACK to check out. Terms apply. Another mistake that that pops up in a cracked article, five movie sequels that actually ruined famous characters, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a mistake where the second movie does a lame resurrection that cheapens the entire drama of it. And there's 
two movies here in particular, the second Men in Black and uh, the second Kingsman movie, you point out really nicely that they they bring back the mentor figure in a really lame way. <laughs> yeah, it's you spend the whole first movie saying, oh, well, now you are learning to be this, you know, member of a secret society and you've learned maturity and how to use, you know, incredible gadgets and yeah. um, and you, ha- you have a, you know, motivation for your revenge and you have ideals to live up to. And they immediately bring back the the character, the mentor figure. It's like, why? No, no. And I get I get again, <laughs> I get that both of those characters, you know, were part of the reason I think why those movies succeeded. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones doing Tough Guy Patter is great, and Colin Colin Firth doing um Prim but Deadly is was very fun to watch. And yeah, it was good. I think I think they just don't think that these movies can stand without it. And it's just bizarre at that point it's just distracting and bizarre when the sequels hit you know maybe it brings back to star wars again because one of the things i learned from my vhs tapes was that george lucas loved that like hero's journey thing the the joseph campbell hero with thousand faces and and in his trilogy obi-wan like like you know does voiceover and ghost stuff but he stays primarily dead he doesn't come back and like fight and stuff right yeah obi-wan's not i mean obi-wan the most that he comes back is he he just yells some stuff at Luke Skywalker at the Death Star like Luke Skywalker who's in a fighter jet a ghost right. is a ghost is gently yelling at him like that is the extent of his powers from beyond the grave at that point you know and side coaching in the swamp that's the yeah, other, side that's coaching it. in the swamp side coaching in the swamp when no one's around like <laughs> no one's around like you know yeah. that's that but yeah Obi-Wan's not not jumping he's not jumping back he's not you know correcting his form and although now I want to write that movie where it's just yeah, like, it's cool. Yeah, I mean the Force Ghosts who just won't leave you alone. You know, it's. I, don't know. I want to write that. You know, Luke, are you free? Like, Luke, Luke I'm bored. <laughs> I'm bored and I'm dead. I need to talk. I feel like Obi Wan never fully comes alive again because consciously or not George Lucas figured out like that would cheapen my hero's journey right like yeah, my hero yeah. has to grow up and be a hero and so if the mentor yeah. just comes back and keeps keeps putting training wheels on him that's not like uh, interesting I mean I think the men in black movies are really good examples of just you know it's 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 funny how we talk about these movies narratively but they these movies are like the byproduct of extremely micromanaged studio decisions involving huge amounts of money and (laughs) you know it's i mean even with the third one you get in the weird scenario where like it's will smith hanging out with josh brolin who is a young tommy lee jones and um it's just like let will smith have an adventure by himself yeah we don't need to do it (laughs) Linda, and in these specific examples, in the second Men in Black movie, they bring back Tommy Lee Jones from having his mind wiped, uh, which yes. is like not not a skillful narrative, but at least there's like a way to do it, kind of. In the second Kingsman movie, uh, we had seen Colin Firth in the first one be uh, shot in the head, and then in mm. the second one, he's just back with like an eye patch over where he got shot, and there and there's not very solid explanation as to how that happened. Yeah, it's just I kind of wish they had spent more time on the um, weird 1950s cocaine empire that was in that second movie. Because I, I mean, that was like that was like some big wacky ideas there thrown around. Well, spend more time with that thing, you know, with a uh, uh, who, who, who was the super villainous in that movie? Why am I? Uh, Julianne Moore. Or? Julianne Moore. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That, that movie would have been more interesting if it was more weird stuff that she was doing. Well, and also and in terms of other mistakes we have here, uh, there, there's one mistake that uh, those Kingsman movies don't quite make. They try to do a new villain instead of Samuel L. Jackson from the first one. Yes. Uh, but many sequels and trilogies will just immediately kill the villain the next movie out that we had seen before so they can move on and get to a new villain that's supposed to be mm-hmm. even more interesting uh, but then that makes that previous villain uh, less interesting. They were they were just suddenly very easy to kill after a whole movie of chasing them around. We've got well this this one was driven by a legal battle. I love Bond movies, and mm-hmm. there was a legal battle over the story for Thunderball that a guy named Kevin McClory won. So Ian Fleming and and the main Bond movie people lost it, and that meant that somebody else kind of owned Blofeld, the famous James Bond villain. <laughs> and so then in the Roger Moore James Bond movie for Your Eyes Only, they cannot say Blofeld's name 
but they take a guy who looks a lot like Blofeld from behind and just immediately drop him down a factory chimney to his death in like a slapstick sequence. I know why they did it behind the scenes, but they, he'd spent like like a dozen movies trying to beat Blofeld and then just suddenly they do like a, a Buster Keaton death of him. You yeah, know, it yeah, doesn't yeah. make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You know, here's this like the iconic Bond villain and it's it's just like throwing a dummy down a stairwell. Like it's very literally. Scary. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's a dummy. Yeah, it's Jeez crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And then we've got we've got other movies here too, like the uh, Boba Fett, and just gets eliminated right at the top of Return of the Jedi, even though he was very interesting in the previous movie because they just want to get to the Emperor and move on, and so it's very slapdash. They in Jurassic World three, they just stop caring about T Rexes, the yeah. king of dinosaurs, yeah, uh, so they can get to a Spinosaur. Oh, freaky! Yeah. That doesn't matter. Come on. Yeah, even weirder is in the subsequent movies, they bring back the T-Rex and there's like the T-Rex redemption moments. And it's where like the T-Rex kills another dinosaur. Oh, and, and, and Jurassic and, World? Yeah, yeah. It, so it, <laughs> they're always, you know, with regards to the T-Rex, T-Rex's win rate, because there's only one T-Rex. It keeps dying and coming back and, you know, not multiple T-Rexes. Uh, with, with regards to the T-Rex's win-loss ratio, like there's there, it, it's it's a roller coaster ride Some in some movies. It gets its ass kicked in some movies, you know, it's T-Rex redemption. Um, <laughs> I like that. Speak- I like that T-Rex is like a boxer or a sports team. Like, yes, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, when it's at home field, it's a lot better, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and speaking of T-Rex redemption, I need to give a shout out to the movie that does villains right. And that oh. is the Raid movies. Um, Which movies? Similar- the Raid movies. Oh, The Raid. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, I've, we, seen, we love- I've seen, I think, the second one. Yeah, it was great. The Raid Redemption is just the first one, weirdly enough, and it's because of, I think, uh, it was originally called The Raid, but they were running into um, legal problems with calling it. So, yeah, The Raid movies, um, for those viewers who are not aware, are really cool Indonesian action movies. And uh, what happens in the first movie, it's about a bunch of cops going after some sort of crime boss in a, um apartment building, and they have to fight their way through, like, floor after floor of the crime boss's uh, yeah. henchmen. And it's really cool. The, the movies really celebrate the the fighting and the martial arts and the room to room aspect of it, right? Like, I, that's oh, yeah. the, I remember it being that way. It's relentlessly brutal and yeah. extremely entertaining. And in The Raid 2, they kill off all of the villains from the first movie almost right away. But they make the point to replace them with martial artists who are even, like, worse than the first movie. They do a great job. At, like, one oh. of them is just... Is, is just a woman who fights with hammers and she's awful. She's terrible. <laughs> she's just she's just a woman who does martial arts with hammers. And another one is a guy who fights with a baseball bat. And that's like all he does. And it's awful and terrible. And it, I think they do a really good job of upping the stakes with the villains in that movie, Inclu- yeah. including the fact that um, Mad, the, the, uh, the actor who plays Mad Dog in the first movie, he has an entire like 45 minute subplot in the second movie where he's just trying to get custody of his children and and that culminates in like a 20 minute like martial arts sequence that has almost no bearing on the actual plot. They just want to give him a time to shine. And guess what? It's great. Freaking great is what it is. <laughs> to make sure I understand when you say that new villains were awful and terrible, do you mean like good awful or bad awful? Oh, good awful. Good awful. Good yeah, awful. No, they're, yeah, just, yeah. they're just cool. visceral and creepy and weird. And um, they, you know, and to and to establish that each of these villains is a force to be reckoned with, they each get a montage of them just killing a bunch of people. So you just have to like sit through three acts of like extremely choreographed murder, and it's <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Maybe that leads to like an overall strategy sequels and trilogies can use with villains where. I feel like you were you're so dead on about no liminal space in these movies, no time where we're just killing time until we get to the next thing. But also, I, f- I feel like with a lot of superhero franchises, especially like some of them will tend to start a first movie without the f- most famous villain. Like Batman Begins, we don't have the Joker yet. Right. We're mm-hmm. building up to it. There's a hint of it at the end. And if that was done poorly, it would be very liminal where we're just like, well, come on, just get to the Joker. This is boring. Yeah, yeah. But maybe maybe the trick is to save those later villains for later movies and still also nail the first movie in a way that that leads us. So then then they make all their money on multiple movies and we get multiple adventures and, and mm-hmm. everybody wins. Everybody wins. It's easy to describe and hard to execute, but maybe that's the trick. Maybe it's it's save uh, save the best villain for later. And the, I think the Dark Knight movies were smart to do this. They, you know, made the Heath Ledger's Joker with such an iconic character. We're now getting a 
standalone Joker movie that looks yeah. kind of weird. <laughs> it looks really <laughs> weird. Like, and you know, yeah, they have they have enough faith in that character to invest an entire movie on it, and it's looks like a deeply strange movie. Um, I don't know if it'll be good, but without kind of giving that character the room to breathe that he needed in the second movie, it's uh, now you have a scenario where it's Joker's you know a household name on the same level and no one's thinking of like you know the old joker with like you know the painted mustache and all that business you know ah uh, 60s batman now, yeah, now 60s i'm just filled batman. with warm feelings this is great yeah <laughs> everyone just wanted to steal like a, a a vase or or like a you know rare bird i mean i figure i feel like a lot of the crimes in 60s <laughs> batman were you know i think we would both be 60s batman criminals because the, you know they had they had interesting goals like i want to steal like the color blue. Yeah, who wouldn't want to do that, you know? <laughs> right. We're, we're both a little bit whimsical, so we would fit yeah, in right yeah. there. Like, yeah, we... like, I'm going to steal getting to go to the zoo on Saturdays, <laughs> you know? like <laughs> I, I've stolen the concept of Christmas. <laughs> I can't have Christmas in a dictionary. Uh, yeah, it would be something That's... like that. I don't know. Well, and one other villain thing, too, there's another mistake here, which is where a trilogy goes into movie three by bringing back the bad guy from the first movie. Right. Oh, yeah. And so then you would think you would just want that exact build you were describing before where movie two has badder villains. Surely movie three should have even badder villains. But basically almost every famous trilogy just makes movie three these villain the exact same as movie one. And this is one of the few spots where the Star the original Star Wars trilogy kind of does blow it. Like they just have mm-hmm. another Death Star and more Emperor and Darth Vader all over yeah. again. I'm actually I'm actually worried about the uh the new Star Wars movies. The the previews are showing uh you hear the Emperor's laugh. And I feel like why are we going back to that? Why why are we going back yeah. to that? Why are we going back to a a like prune like Space wizard, we've we've done that. We've done that. You know, it's and I feel like this, that was also the the message of the second movie. So I'm a little nervous about that. I am yeah. confiding my anxiety in you, Alex. Yeah, you mean like message of Last Jedi? I I really enjoyed its concept of we we need to be our own heroes and and not just obsess over the previous heroes all the time. Yeah, I, I thought that was um you know yeah. for for whatever narrative quibbles I got with that movie, I think it was trying to do something interesting and you know yeah. it was being a little bit it was being kind of brassy about it, but at the same time, I think it worked overall. I do too. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Even if they do that, and and we'll find out uh, several months from now. But if they do that, where they just lean back on uh, shriveled old Sheev Palpatine, yeah, uh, it's gonna be uh, his first name's Sheev. Uh, it, it's gonna <laughs> be Pal- the opposite of the message of the the movie that preceded it immediately, where we got yeah. something new. Narrative whiplash, man. Uh, <laughs> if you're gonna do that, at least make like a sexy emperor and it doesn't have to be like it doesn't have to be like the Borg queen and like a sexy woman it can be just like right. a very sleek like <laughs> emperor who's like who's like you know he he listens to you and he picks up <laughs> dinner and he's the emperor and he's evil but he's he's doing all the right things and he, maybe 40% of the right things and the other 60% is like you know empire but the other 40% is you know being a valued partner <laughs> And then in terms of other other franchises where we get the bad guy just comes right back, uh, the Dark Knight movies, we have the League of Shadows and Batman Begins, and yep. then they just put a, a new vibe over it in the Dark Knight Rises, the third movie, with Ra's al Ghul's daughter Talia and then Bane yep. working for them. It's just right back, same thing. Actually, I think I'm probably one of the few people on this planet who likes the Dark Knight Rises. I find it to be just such a big, bombastic kind of movie, and it's, it's goofy. It's goofy in a lot yeah, of ways, yeah. but I think it's also... A big, bombastic, weird, weird movie. I do think one of its failings, is I agree with you there, uh, is the second movie is basically Heat with the Joker. Heat with the Joker and Batman. And the third movie, you're getting into all these secret societies and ninjas and, you know, people who live in a big hole. And it's not what people liked about the second movie. I think you also bring up an excellent, uh, successful thing sequels and trilogies can do, too, where they... I think of the Captain America movies with this, too, where they, like, make these sequels a whole new kind of movie. The original Star Trek movies did, too. Like, suddenly it's a a buddy comedy with whales, or suddenly it's Wrath of Khan, where it's like a a Horatio Hornblower naval battle sort of thing. Like, like (laughs) if you make every sequel a whole new kind of movie, that's very exciting. It's great. Yeah. 
I feel like, yeah, that is successful. I guess in the particular example of The Dark Knight, it's just, I think the audience simply didn't remember who the hell Ra's al Ghul was at this point. <laughs> like, I, I just don't yeah. think anyone cared at that point. Captain America is a really strong example of that because, you know, Captain America has really occupied in the last, you know, half century. There's a level of hokiness about him. And, don't you know, don't get me wrong. People have done interesting interpretations of Captain America. Yeah. But uh, Winter Soldier, I feel like you can really go back to what people like, I think, during like Ed Brubaker's uh, run on Captain America. It's it feels very heavily inspired by that. And it's kind of cool. leaning in on the espionage elements of Captain America and, you know, one sane man with a true heart against the cruel realities of real politic or whatever. And that's... uh, Yeah. And like a CIA conspiracy and stuff. Yeah. And and Captain America is like, you know, he just wants to do what's right and in a world full of corrupt bureaucrats and he's, you know... Given his all, and that's America. I love and it. That's uh, yeah. There, there's and then there's, there's like a nice aspirational quality. It's the any man quality of Captain America. I think that that's yeah. like that's what's good about that movie. Also, to the fact that he's like he takes down like a fighter jet by himself. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I want <laughs> I want to see a guy fight a jet. Like that's what I came to the theater for. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you could walk into a room with that title and just suddenly the movie would start production. Like it would just yeah. spring out of the the ether. Yeah. 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 yeah <laughs> I don't know. Like, make it make it like like that book we all read in middle school, Hatchet, except the kids fighting a jet uh, in the wilderness. Right, Hatch Jet. Yeah. <laughs> and he has his hatchet. Always causes hatchet to take down the jet. I mean, yeah, I'd watch that. And we got a couple other trilogies here where they just bring the bad guy right back in the in the third movie. In Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Freddy goes right back to doing dream murder. In the second movie, they had found a thing where he controls people's bodies. In Spider-Man 3, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, the first movie, he's like trying to find out Uncle Ben's killer. And then in the third movie, he finds out he had the wrong guy and just does that whole plot line over again yeah, for yeah, some yeah. reason. Yeah. And then The Matrix, uh, that that trilogy that's not good. First one, he fights one Agent Smith. The second one, he fights infinite Agent Smiths. And then the third one is just one Agent Smith again, which is yeah. not an escalation at all. <laughs> yeah, once you fight a football team of Agent Smiths. I mean, yeah, and that was extra cool. That was part of the still having hope after the second movie. Yeah. It was like he yeah. did fight a, a billion Agent Smiths. That's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, once you, once you cross that Rubicon of... All those Agent Smiths, you, you know, you can't go back. You need to, you need to up the stakes. Yeah. In hindsight, it should have been clear that they couldn't escalate beyond infinity villains. Like, there's not more than infinity. Uh, I'm realizing infinity that now. Plus one. That's on me. Smiths. There's another. Uh, there's a cracked article here to draw on called Five Sequels That Ruined the Original Movie's Point" by Tara Marie, and that that whole article is another enormous mistake people make, where just they make a sequel that like invalidates the message of the previous mm-hmm. movies. So it's less of a like a lot of the stuff we've talked about is canon or specific narrative beats. This is like just the overall message of the film gets thrown out by its sequel, and that feels like a big mistake. Don't do that. Thematic consistency is somewhat important. Yes, you, you are supposed to subvert the audience's expectations, but again, and again, I, I feel like looking at these, the movies that are kind of keynote, you know, keystone examples, this, it's at the end of the day, it's like money and trying to recapture lightning in a bottle again and again. You and I, and I think Christy Harrison, we did a, a podcast a while back where we got into stuff like the extended Garfield universe, where there's yes. a bunch of canon and stuff. And that was all sort of a celebration of the magic of capitalism, where just mm-hmm. there was money out there. So we got these insane things we wouldn't otherwise get. I think you're right that a lot of these are are, are capitalism failing us, where they just wanted I, to make that next bucket of money and they didn't uh, think it through. I think we're kind of stealthily praising Garfield for being true art for... <laughs> <laughs> One of these examples of sequel that that uh, ignored the original movie's point, you point out a, a lot of very clear things too, just narratively with the Jurassic Park and world franchises in general. The uh, the article picks out that the original Jurassic Park is about how man can never fully control nature. It's basically full of characters saying that explicitly all the time. Mm-hmm. There's like a Jeff Goldblum speech and everything. And then the Jurassic World franchise so far, the problems are all generated by man completely controlling nature. Like it's a fully genetically engineered dinosaur fighting another fully genetically engineered one in a completely manicured park. It's just all man stuff uh, with nature having no role in it. I feel like those movies are so strange because it wants to have a connection to the prior films. In Jurassic World, the kids discover the old visitor center 
And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, how were they able to launch this successful theme park without someone, you know, someone, the investors or whatever, you know, government apparatuses are attached there? Like, how did, imagine if there was a theme park, a billion dollar theme park, and it, it opened, and then it would not open if the people knew that lots of people died there originally when it first started. It's like, what if Six Flags Great Adventure was just like the site of countless atrocities? But now there's a roller coaster there. You know, it's, it's it, it, it wouldn't exist. And 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 I guess part of the thing is simply with Jurassic World, they you know they hand wave that away. They're like, oh no, they just made it work. They just made this right. theme park with incredibly dangerous dinosaurs that killed a lot of people in several previous movies. They just they just made it work, and that's. <laughs> At the end of the day, the audience knows they're watching a movie about dinosaurs in a theme park, so they're not going to complain too much. But again, from a narrative standpoint, it's just bizarre. Somebody can get their PhD in economics explaining how that would possibly be a feasible business resurrection of bringing yeah, that back. Yeah, I don't yeah, there, know. I, mean, I want to watch a movie about the PR campaign that convinced everyone that Jurassic World was a family-friendly destination. It's like, yes, you have... All of these murdered people, they were all murdered by dinosaurs. <laughs> and like a Glen Gary, Glenn Ross kind of situation of the PR firm trying to sell Jurassic World to, <laughs> to investors that if families come here, they won't die. Um, yeah, it's not a different business, really. Yeah. It's I, just I wanna, like a bigger park. <laughs> yeah, it's just an even bigger park. And the dinosaurs are still as violent as ever. They're still yeah. going to, they're still extremely dangerous. We're just we're just gonna get it to work this time. In terms of PR and, and with the thematic stuff, like every ad for I think both Jurassic World and the next Jurassic World, they tended to focus on like Chris Pratt and his trained Velociraptors mm -hmm. because you yes. can just train a Velociraptor now. And that that's, feels like it runs so counter to all the previous Jurassic Park movies where, like, there is just not a way to contain or control yes. dinosaurs. And they're like loyal dogs or something in the new movies. I'm not saying that's impossible as canon. Like, you can do that. It seems like thematically it's throwing out what was so interesting and meaningful before. Obviously, because it's, you know, Chris Pratt and a... Velociraptor. Everyone wants to watch them doing things and going on escapades together, clearly. But yes, it is. It's not, you know, it doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of what the movies were trying to like sell. And the Jurassic World movies are, they feel like kitsch these days. It's kind of like hard B-movie plotting dressed up in Jurassic World, you know, dressed up in yeah. the Jurassic Park universe. And I'm, I'm, look, I'm not saying that the Jurassic Park universe, I'm not saying that this is like Ivanhoe or something, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's it's a movie about di it's dinosaurs in a park, you know, and it's interesting how these things develop and how the plot changes and how, you know, millions of dollars of studio money dictates the, how these movies are crafted. Especially it's, it's kind of a movie about commercialism and, yes. and commercialism leading to bad things sometimes, but then they're marketing it and profiting from it too. Like it's, it's really hard to execute properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You'd think that they would have enough problems with the dinosaurs normally. And it's Jurassic World opens with the dinosaurs being such such a lack of problem that they're just inventing new dinosaurs to become even bigger problems. It's very right. weird. They have fully controlled nature. It's all set. Yes. These, <laughs> these insane murderous clone dinosaurs are now just not a problem. What's, we got this. We got this. We're Jurassic World. <laughs> Another franchise we can look at here uh, that, that the article picks out too is Rambo. Because Rambo takes a first movie that has a really, really clear viewpoint about war, and then and then we get all the rest of the Rambo movies. I mean, First Blood's a movie about PTSD, man. Like, and yeah, then, and then he just goes and murders lots of other people. Like, uh, oh, that's there's a lot to unpack there about Rambo. There's yeah. a lot to, and it's a somewhat dark thing. Uh, but it's it's a thing I shouldn't even say somewhat. It's just dark. But that first movie, First Blood, is about how war like screws up people's minds sometimes when they go through it and then all of the sequels are Rambo going to Vietnam and Afghanistan and Burma just killing everyone yes Rambo and... Rambo just if if I was trying to make sense of the Rambo movies by just watching them one after the other unaware of kind of the you know political climate which they were made or the you know studio machinations that like involved their making I would just assume that Rambo after the first movie cured his PTSD and then just got back to killing everyone. He's like, I love this. It's great. I can murder again. Right. Like, thousands like, of times over. Yeah. PTSD is like strep or the hiccups or something. Yeah. You just Good work it him. out. Yeah. Good for him. Now he can go back to 
Good old-fashioned killing. Great job, Rambo. <laughs> and really a lot of killing. The article collects statistics that are interesting mm. because in, in the movie First Blood, Rambo commits one accidental murder, like somebody falls from a high point. And then by the next movie, First Blood Part 2, he kills 58 bad guys in one movie, <laughs> which is real, real cured of all, the, of all the, the feeling bad. He's just back in the saddle. First Blood's actually a really interesting movie. I, I like First Blood. Part of the movie is Rambo is pushed to the point where when people start getting injured, they have pushed a guy who's having a lot of problems, whereas, you know, the previous movies do not really address that. Like Rambo's like pushed to the limit. He's like he's still doing the mission, still doing the mission, you know. Yeah, again, like the, but, the sequels to it are just he's on the mission. He's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, then, and there's a and there's a lot to unpack. There is a lot, you know, about when these movies were made and. Like you said, there's a couple different pressures because like you say, there's one pressure of our worldview of things changes over time. And so as you're making a franchise year to year, you have to like grapple with that. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. also also money. Like people yes. may not want to see a second film about PTSD because it's very sad. I, I hope there's a way to do it because that's an interesting thing to cover and deal with. Did you know that Rambo 5 is coming out this year? I did. I, I saw there's like an Instagram post of Stallone holding like a bow and arrow and, and announcing that it's going to be a thing. Yeah. Yes. And it's it's called Last Blood, which, you know, <laughs> is it called Last Blood? <laughs> it, is, it is called Last Blood. It's called Last Blood. <laughs> I'm reading the Wikipedia page. Sounds like it's Rambo versus the cartels. Um, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, Great. Or something like that. Yeah. There was a previous version of Rambo, um, a previous version of a script that, yeah, it was supposed to be a monster movie. Um, <laughs> it, and yeah, it's uh, looks like it was supposed to be about Rambo versus a um, genetically altered monster or something, you know. Well, um, there's a there's a I think there's a new Godzilla movie coming out in like a, mm -hmm. a little while. And so I'm, I'm really hoping Rambo just pops up in that like that's it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rambo, I, I mean, I would, I would, I would watch that. But and uh, and speaking of Godzilla, there uh, we do have new movie coming out very soon. I didn't know a lot about this franchise. I, I really learned about it from this article. But the the original Godzilla, the Japanese movie. The, the message is about how nuclear weapons shouldn't be used by anyone. Uh, there's references to real U.S. nuclear testing that that irradiated Japanese fishermen and got them sick, and and it ends like sadly, you know, on a bleak note. But then they repackaged it for America with an American hero and a much more upbeat message. And then all the sequels from there were like cool monster fights. It was not yeah. a, it was not this sad movie similar to Rambo, where it's it's about a real dark thing. Yeah. And, and it's also it's also I mean, Godzilla, it's the spectacle versus the allegory in a way, you know, it's like. You know, Godzilla versus the smog monster. The smog monster is just like generalized pollution, but it's oh. also just like <laughs> he's made of smog. I don't know. Like it's it's just he's just a pile of garbage that Godzilla's gonna fight. Godzilla loves the earth. I like that um, a lot, actually. That sounds good. <laughs> and, 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 and occasionally, you know, I'm I'm not giving the gods. I mean, and like the movie Shin Godzilla came out in recent years, and that was like a way to they were really playing with like making Godzilla scary again because I feel like over the years the problem with Godzilla is. Everyone likes Godzilla. Everyone likes a giant, robust, 500-foot-tall reptile. But also, you know, there's also a kind of very deep horror dimension to that. And I feel like whenever they're, they're trying to make a new Godzilla movie, they're really, or at least for, you know, for an American audience, they're trying to confront the fact that you're supposed to like Godzilla. But Godzilla is also killing thousands of people every time he walks. You know, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's competing messages, one could say. There seems to be a kind of thing in the later Godzilla movies where he does a lot of fighting to protect us from other monsters. Like I haven't I haven't seen the 2015 Godzilla, but this mm -hmm. article explains that it makes Godzilla a monster who kills other bigger monsters that are coming. Like kind of yeah. kind of like recent King Kong stuff where he saves yeah. us from crazy reptiles. When you talk make movies about kaiju in that way, of course you want to make them lovable and stuff, but it's if you're looking for serious Godzilla drama, it's it really muddies the waters because you're supposed to like this giant uh, murderous reptile. Yeah. <laughs> and especially like spanning the entire franchise, uh, there's going to be a new 2019 movie, Godzilla King of the Monsters. This will come out before that releases end of May of 2019. 
that movie in the Wikipedia description. It describes uh, one of the main characters as being someone who's developed a technology that can control these kaiju and and have mm. them operate on our behalf uh, in a positive way, probably. And then mm. this original Godzilla movie all the way back is about how no one can control nuclear power. No one should have it. Yes. No one should use it. It's a complete 180 of what it used to be about. Yeah, Godzilla should just be able to do what Godzilla can do. Like, it's, I don't want anyone, I don't want touching, anyone touching that. <laughs> Giant reptile. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Syriac Lamar for knowing so many sequels and also so many attempts at sequels. Like that he uh, he has such a base of knowledge and uh, and a great way of looking at this stuff. I'm so glad he can make the time and, and have fun with me talking about it. And in our food notes, you will find many of the cracked articles that we drew on for a lot of these ideas and also some other things Syriac and I brought into it about other films and other ways they went about things. In particular, I hope you will check out that article by Tara Marie that cites the Rambo uh, deaths and body count and shift there. I uh, On a past episode, I was talking about the Jack Bauer kill count as sort of an artifact of the immediately post 9-11 world. The Rambo movies are kind of that for Vietnam, I feel like. The Rambo movies have an additional shift in tone, you know, and, and in how they view the world. But suddenly in all the sequels, we get into a Jack Bauer kill count after in the first movie asking whether there should be kill counts. That's crazy fascinating that an entire franchise can do that, especially when it's kind of the same guy, Stallone, steering it the whole way. So that's some pop culture for you, and thank you for checking it out. And you're about to hear Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. It is our theme music. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy in L.A. and Jared O'Connell in New York. Then it was edited together by Chris Souza. Also, special thanks to Ashley Warren and to Matt Apodaca and Renee Colvert for helping set all this up. So many people making the show happen. It's great. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a space where sequels get picked apart pretty much every week because we, we tend to have sequels every week in the world. They're just always being born. It's amazing. And I don't think that's social media's fault. I think they're just fascinating to look at. Kind of set up the whole show today, didn't it? My Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitstagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. Reach out there. Talk to me about The Godfather or something. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. Many thanks to Turo, that's T-U-R-O, for their support of this show. They are a peer-to-peer car-sharing marketplace. Turo has exotic sports cars or cars for practical daily drivers or anything in between. You can choose the best car for you, whatever your budget. So download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play, or visit Turo.com. Get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo and use promo code CRACKED at checkout. Terms apply. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.